This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Hey guys, my name is Becca Canada and we are going to be reading um, in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16 this morning. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Pray with me. Jesus, we just, um, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for how good you are, um, how faithful you are, Lord, and we thank you for your word. Um, And Lord, we just ask that you would just wash us in the water of your word this morning, um, that you would meet us and that you would um, just cause every distraction and everything that um, would keep us from keeping our eyes on you just to fade away, Lord, and that you would fill our vision. And we just ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. And we um, just praise you for being a God who calls us to be holy and then um, does that for us, Lord, and, and makes us holy, Lord, by the cleansing of your blood. And we just Praise you for who you are, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16 Sunday, or as um, we will affectionately refer to it from now on, it'll be set your hope fully on grace Sunday. That's what we're going to be contending for today. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited for a number of reasons. One, I love, there's a phrase that we're going to get to dive into today, to be holy as he is holy. And I feel like uh, one thing that's been cool for me in learning to, to teach and preach is that when you spend time in a text, it, it never fails. It doesn't matter if it's a text that I've read a thousand times in my life, if I've studied it in detail previously. Every time I dive into a text, especially when I do it through the lens of asking the Father, hey, God, you know who's going to be sitting in the seats on Sunday. You know where they are. You know who they are. You know where they're at seasonally in their life. You know the things that they most need that are going to encourage them to godliness, to set-apart living. That every time, no matter how many times I've seen a text, when I read it with you guys in mind, I see it different. And so thank you all for that, for that gift that you get to give. As I, as I get to read and say, Lord, you know, you know who's going to be there on Sunday and what they most need to hear. Um, I'm excited for um, learning what holiness means. I feel like the Lord's kind of reworked the definition of that, that word in my mind over the past couple days. But also, I'm excited just because these are the writings of Peter. And, okay, I, I got to make sure. The one thing that I've noticed is it's really easy for me when I'm reading the text of the Word of God. It's really easy for me to just, like, read it. Like, okay, here it is. Here's the, the truth of it. I like, I don't know if you all like me, but I love deep diving even into the Greek and Hebrew and the original languages, you know. Or sitting there during worship, and I'm, like, singing, but I'm also, like, looking at, like, what charis means, like this Greek word for grace. I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. You know, I, that's, that's worship for me. I love that. But. It's easy sometimes when I get so into the fine print and so into the deep dive of the Word of God that I forget. I forget that this is the heart of a man, a very specific man, a particular man named Peter. And as I was reading through, reading through these words, I almost had this sense of like, man, what if, if Peter could talk in a modern context? All right, not like my ESV version, maybe not even like 
the NLT, but like if we, if we could hear like, you know, what Peter would want to say from his heart in a modern understanding, like what would he say to us? And I, I almost had the sense that like the preface would be, guys, you don't understand how wild my last 30 years was. And what I mean is when Peter writes this, it's likely in the early 60 ADs. He has met Jesus in like the late 20 ADs, so about 35 years since he met Jesus walked with him. He's likely in his late 50s at this point. We know from history that what Peter didn't know, but was probably pretty, pretty, um, he would have had a good guess that he was getting close to death. And shortly after this, history tells us that he was likely crucified upside down because he said he was unworthy to die in the same manner that his Savior did. But I want to walk you through who it is that we're hearing from before we even dive into the text of the scripture. Because Peter was a man unlike many others, all right? He was, he was very, very different. Now, even if you remember it, like Peter had an accent. I was, I was reading through the gospels even yesterday a little bit, and I, I got to like the end where Peter's denies him the three times, and he's right here at the, you know, Jesus is on trial. He's getting ready to go to his crucifixion, and he's around a campfire, and there's people that are making fun of his accent. You remember this? They're like, bro, we can tell you're redneck. Like, that's what they're saying. Like, you talk like you're from Galilee. You know, I don't know if he just, if he, is he speaking like Aramaic or Koine Greek or whatever it was, if he just, if his vowels were longer than the people next to him at the fire, but like whatever was going on with his accent, they're like, dude, you are rural. There is no way You've spent much time at all in an urban context. You are rural. And this dude was a fisherman from birth. If you know, we've kind of walked through what it would have looked like for a man to be a fisherman in that day. I know we've done that previously historically on Sundays, but just a quick overview. The fact that Peter and a few of the other disciples were fishermen who were working for their fathers when Jesus met them meant that at some point along their educational journey, Someone decided, hey, you were not meant for the ministry. You were not intended to be a rabbi. You were not intended to go further. Your time will be better spent doing manual labor. And that was the assumption for most young Jewish boys at the time. The best of the best, those who were elite scholastically, would get to move on educationally till they would become a Talmudine, or another word that we would say disciple of a rabbi. They would learn what he learned, and hopefully by the time they were 30 years old, they would enter into rabbinic living. They would become a rabbi themselves. The men that Jesus chose as his disciples, he didn't pick any disciples from other people, did he? He picked the, he picked the manual laborers. He picked the ones that everybody else said, man, they, they're not really good for much except for catching some fish or collecting some taxes or doing things that don't involve a life of ministry. And Peter was one of those. He was likely the oldest of the disciples. So he probably would have been in his early 20s. The other ones would have been teenagers. And there it is, the late 20 ADs, and all of a sudden in the middle of a normal day of doing manual labor like he'd always done, he gets interrupted. And he gets interrupted by meeting God himself in human form on earth. And when he meets Jesus, Jesus doesn't just, it's not just a powerful encounter. It changes everything about the course of Peter's life. And he's invited not just to recognize who Jesus is, but to come alongside him, 
to walk as he walked, to do life with him, and to fall in love with him ultimately. He becomes a fisher of men. You remember that invitation? Jesus says, hey, instead of fishing for fish, how about you come fish for people? And that's who Peter became. And then he becomes the leader of a movement. If you remember at the end, um, Peter denies Jesus three times. And then after Jesus' resurrection, there's a reestablishment that happens around the campfire. Um, Andrew did a beautiful job, and we talked through this back when we were walking through John, of recognizing the fact that there was this particular word for a charcoal fire. And Jesus made the exact same kind of fire on the shore when, they, um, when he reestablished Peter, when he three times asked him, Peter, do you love me? He made the same kind of charcoal fire that it mentions was there when Peter denied him. Would have been the same smell that would have all come back to him. And Jesus reestablishes him, showers him with grace. And then things get really wild. You would think like, oh man, there's, there's no greater death to life than this blue-collar fisherman with a redneck accent all of a sudden becoming the oldest of the disciples that are going to follow around the Messiah that Israel has been longing for. But then it gets crazier. Jesus ascends into heaven. And the early church begins. And then Peter begins walking in so much power, so much authority. I don't know if you remember what happens. A lot of times, um, Acts chapter 5, everything's looking really cool in Acts. It's like super fun, and thousands of people are coming to Christ. There's baptisms and healings. And all of a sudden, chapter 5 comes in and ruins everything. And these two people were like, hey, we want to give a donation to the church. We sold this property, and this is all the money we made. But both of them knew, actually, it's just part of the money, but this will sound better. And they both drop dead. All right? So, yeah. So, just whatever, just that's another call out. Whatever you have in your pocket, just go ahead and drop that in the offering plates on the way out. Just kidding. Just kidding. No, no. It was because they were dishonest. So, so they, they drop over dead. And Acts 5, all of a sudden, it's like everybody's filled with fear. They're like, what is going on? There is a power that is happening right now in this early church that is startling. And most people's response is not enthusiasm. It's terror. It says they were so scared that no one dared to join them, yet their number was added to daily. And in the middle of this, right after Ananias and Sapphira drop over dead, something really, really cool happens. It says the church was growing, all this great stuff was happening, and all of a sudden there's this little shout-out about Peter. It says, and people would bring their sick on beds and mats, and they would lay them on the side of the road opposite of the sun, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them. And the next verse at the end, it says, and all of them were healed. All right, so what do we got going on here? We got fishermen, rural, redneck accent, nothing to look forward to in his future except for doing what his dad did, which is probably fine for him. I don't think Peter wasn't probably some guy who was sitting there with these deep aspirations of like, you know, I don't, I don't think this would have been like the, the part of the music where he's like, I want to do something more. You know, like, no, this is, he's like, yeah, just like fish. You know, this is, he's cool. And Jesus comes in and interrupts. He becomes the oldest of the disciples that will end up literally changing the world. And he begins to walk in so much intimacy with Jesus, with his best friend that a residue of the effect that relationship had on him became so profound that if you happened to get in the way of his shadow, your life could change. And then 
he proceeds to help plant the early church, to love people, to walk with the expectation that impossibility is his new normal. And 30 years of doing that, 30 years down the road of that being his daily life and expectation, he writes a letter, a letter that is handed down for a few thousand years to intentionally be read by you and I. So as we read 1 Peter, as we walk through this entire book over the next potentially years, so I don't know how long it'll take us. We do not have any intentions of going fast through it. As we walk through this, I want you to remember who is writing this, who is writing this to you, who it is that's encouraging you. The guy who saw people healed because his shadow touched him. The one who denied Jesus three times but was reestablished and restored. And the one who didn't just think of Jesus as the primary figure in the religion that he called his own, but as his best friend. And uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. I love this section. I, I was, as I was reading through it, I was thinking, this is kind of like his locker room talk. All right, I don't know. Uh, who in here played sports? I'd actually just love to know if it's like a minority, about half and half. Okay, all right. Okay, cool, cool. I see some of you raising your hands, and I'm like, come on. What are you talking about? You, you quit T-ball at six years old, and are you counting that right now? What's happening? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, but I, I think a lot of us probably played sports, and if you did, then you may have had like that locker room moment or that dugout moment. I got a, I'm coaching T-ball right now. My little boy, Wynn, is a, he's in the throes of fall ball, and uh, it is awesome being in the dugout, which in my mind, it was like, man, I will be, like the dugout is the ultimate place in baseball. The dugout is where you are between everything. But in baseball, it's such a slow game, miserably slow game, that you are in the dugout the majority of the time. Most of the game, dugout, all right? So I'm like, yeah, I'll be the dugout coach. I'll be the guy in the dugout. I'll motivate these boys. I will like, I will be like, you know, I'll, I'll come up with these like speeches. I'll like get these, these phrases. They're walking up to the plate to give them encouragement and stuff. And really what that means is I just try to keep helmets from breaking four-year-olds' noses. That's what my job is, and I'm not real good at it. No noses broken, but lots of crying, lots of crying in the dugout these days. But, uh, so I'm probably not the example that we're looking for here, but, but Peter, Peter has this moment that I imagine almost being like his dugout moment or his locker room speech where he is in front, he's like in front of these people that he's loved, those that have been that have now kind of been dispersed all over the world that are this part of this early church that he's seen the Lord establish for the past 30-plus years. And he tells them, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to. One thing I've been doing lately is when I especially if I'm reading a passage of scripture, I, sometimes I can read in just big chunks. You know, it's cool to like read a, lot, a few chapters a day. I love that. I think it's a great habit and practice. But one thing I've noticed myself doing is I can read past the most profound statement in human history almost like I forgot. I didn't even notice it. And so especially when I'm looking at a text like this, I love to read it slow. And so what I'm going to invite you to do is to read it slow with me. So therefore, preparing your minds preparing your minds. He's inviting them. He's going to invite us to do two things with our minds here. Prepare your mind. What are you preparing it for? For action. 
to prepare it for action, to prepare your mind to find passivity in your Christian life to be an impossibility, to prepare for action, to remove passive as an option, to remove compartmentalizing your friendship with God as one aspect of your life, remove that as an option. Prepare your mind for action. Prepare your life to be saturated with the realities of who the Father is and what this grace means for us. And being sober-minded, sober-minded. All right, he's not just saying, there can be a, a reference here to the way that you treat alcohol, but I don't think that's really what he's getting at here. To be sober-minded. It's somebody who always makes sure that just like he's going to say here in a second, that you set your hope. This is the same language that we see Paul use in other places. He uses it in one of my favorite passages, Colossians 3, where he says, set your minds on things above. He's saying, I want you to begin to imagine what on earth as it is in heaven living could really look like. Set your hope fully on grace I love that too, that he doesn't say set your hope fully on digging down deep so you can be obedient. There's a desire, for, there's certainly a need, a desire, a yearning in the heart of the text of the word of God for obedience. Absolutely. But if you get to obedience without getting there by grace, then your obedience will not last. The only possibility for sustained life of obedience to the word of God and to his heart is to get there with a recognition that grace writes every story worth reading. When I was thinking about how to, like, how to make this practical, you know, I love some of these statements like, man, pretty my fact, sober minded, fully on the grace. But I'm like, okay, how do we make this practically? What's the, what does it look like for not just, oh, cool, Cool lesson on Sunday, but like, how does this change our Monday? And I love what happens next, where he says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. My mom would always say this when I was growing up, and I, I've loved it. It's live like your last name is child of God. Live like your last name is child of God. I've got to have a, a visual. I have a visual this Sunday, a little visual here. I was uh, cleaning out some storage stuff for my dad the other day, and I found my old T-ball jersey. Ooh, there it is. Now, I know, I know most of you are thinking, wait, T-ball jersey, that's probably too big for Jenny Hogg. I'm here in the back, no offense, Jenny. Um, but yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was seven when I wore this. I was a large seven-year-old, okay? I recognize that. But on the back of this jersey, look at that, Vernon, 13. And you know why? Because my dad's favorite number is 13. And that's what, well, that's right. Uh-huh. So I wore 13 because it was my dad's favorite number. And I love, I found that the other day, and I, I saved it for my little boy so he can, he can wear that. And I was like, man, that's a, what a, you know, I just, I loved playing for the Cubs. I remember that year. It was just a great year just because I got to wear pinstripes. I don't remember anything else about the season. I just remember I got to wear pinstripes, and that was awesome. And I was number 13 because it was my dad's favorite number. And as I was reading through this, I was thinking, Lord, that's what you're inviting us to. Live like your last name is child of God. And I was out there in my little Cubs uniform, 
is a, they all thought I was an assistant coach instead of a child who was actually playing t-ball. When we started playing All-Stars, I literally had to take my birth certificate places because they tried to not let me play. They're like, that is, that is a Yeti and not a human. How is, how is a seven-year-old that big? These are all true stories. And, uh, but I remember, I remember being out there, my dad's favorite number, my last name, and I was representing my family. You know what? And like, sure, it was T-ball. I know it's not that big of a deal. But I, I remember that. I remember being like, I'm going to wear my dad's favorite number. I got Vernon on my back. I'm out there as this representative of my family. And I saw this jersey on Friday when we were cleaning out that storage. And I was like, man, Lord, that kind of reminds me of what I've been reading this week. To live like my last name is child of God. And so to continue the, uh, the athletic analogies. Guys, it's like every day you wake up, and whether you want to or not, you're putting a jersey on. Every day. Those of you that raised your hands and those that kept your hands down. All of you. If you call yourself a child of God, if you're in relationship with your heavenly Father, then it's like you've got his last name on your back. And everything you do represents your family name. So live like your last name is child of God. How do we do that? Do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. I love this because what he said there was basically, he, he really just said holy in a different way. To be holy, you might know what the, there's like a two-word definition for holy that tends to be kind of most people's understanding theologically, which is accurate and right. Does anybody know what the two-word definition that most people use for holy would be? Set apart. That's right. Say it with me. Set apart. And that is holy. So it's not, it's not behaving well. It's not being good. Those things can all be fine. But that's not what holiness is. When I think of holiness, I, I realize that this week that I kind of associate holiness, I make it a synonym of righteousness. And I think that's unfair because while they both may end up having the same fruit, the same effect as far as the outward expression of holiness and righteousness, the inward reality and the understanding are very different. Because holy is not well-behaved. Holy is set apart. Holy is to be altogether other than. Do not be conformed. You may recognize that. It's a phrase that Paul uses in Romans 12 as well. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. That, that's one of my favorite words that, you know, I've told you guys I'm not a Greek scholar at all, but I love, I love looking up Greek words. Um, you also can do the same thing if you have Google. Um, and so I, I love looking up like, man, what do these words mean? Where else are they found? And the word, when it says in Romans 12, do not be conformed, be transformed. It's the word metamorpho, where we got the English word for metamorphosis. And that word metamorpho only shows up four times in all of God's word. Two times are in two of the different, the different moments of the transfiguration in the Gospels, where Jesus is transfigured and his glory is put on display visibly in front of three disciples. And then he says, don't tell anybody until I'm gone. He's transfigured, he's transformed, he's metamorphosed. And then there's two other places it shows up. And both of those other two places are about you. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Be transformed. 
Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It's just saying, guys, you want to look like your dad. When you're a child of the Most High, you just want, you want to live in such a way that when people think of your family name, and that if you're a representative of it, you're like, man, I, gosh, I want to be a representative that gives a fair understanding of how cool my dad is. Now, I recognize when I say that for some of you, you've had father figures on earth that have tainted the understanding of that word. Because I do not mean, I do not mean our earthly understanding of fatherhood. I mean a divine understanding. A father who is always loved you unconditionally, never passively, never aggressively. He has always loved you perfectly. And we want to represent him. So what is holiness? We had that two-word two word definition. What was it? What was it? Set apart. Okay, to be set apart, to be different than, to be other than. But I want to... when. When the Jewish people would have read this, when people would have read this in the first century, their minds would have gone to a few places. And uh, one of those places would have been the temple. So the temple was like the place where sacrifice was made. It was where sin was atoned for. And when you went to the temple, there were things in the temple that could only be used in the temple. And they were these like um, utensils and like spoons and things like that, but they were all made of gold. And these are things that you would never take out of the temple because they were meant for holy use. We had a really great discussion this week at my family group and got to kind of unpack some of this. And it was so cool to just hear different people's perspectives. And my friend Logan Hurley, who's um, at Southern Seminary right now, was just talking about what he's been learning about this. It was really encouraging to me, and I want to share it with you guys, that these temple utensils, the word profanity, we hear the word profanity, profane. What profanity is, was not, the definition of that word was not when somebody cusses or when somebody uses verbiage that they shouldn't or that would be socially inappropriate. The word profanity was to take a device meant for holy use, a set-apart utensil, and to use it for something common. It was to profane it. So imagine... If somebody would have walked into the temple, grabbed the golden spoon meant to be used for sacrifice, and then came and ate their cereal with it. To the Jewish people, they would have been like, oh, that's profanity. It's what profanity meant by definition. To take a device only meant to be used for divine purpose and to treat it like it's common. Now, what I love about this as I was reading this, I was thinking, man, Lord, this is, this is kind of different, though, now, because we don't have temple implements up here. You know, like if, you know, if, there's, if you want to use this mic somewhere off the stage, it's not going to be like, oh, no. You know, actually, I used one of these mics to sing a Johnny Cash song this week at an old tractor show on Friday in Nicholasville. True story. Came up here and borrowed the mic for that purpose. It was with my buddy Cody Todd. Um, I do not think that the Lord was going, oh, how dare ye? That is meant for divine use. It's like, no, I think, I think the Lord's a fan of Johnny Cash, actually. I do. I don't, I don't have any scripture to back that up. I just think he is, okay? But I love, I love it. It's not, I can tell, like, Lord, this, 
this doesn't quite make sense for us because the things that we use here, we, this isn't the temple. This actually isn't even, I, would, I wouldn't even be comfortable calling this a sanctuary. This is called a room. That's it. This is a room. It's 2,700 square feet. It's a room. It's all it is. It's not a special set-apart room. This is not a church. This is a room. You are a church. You are a temple of the Most High. You're a temple when you're in here, and you're a temple when you walk out that door and head to Culver's for lunch. And you should because they have the best kids' meal in the city. But regardless, regardless that this room is not set apart, this, these implements up here are not sacred because they are in the house of the Lord. This is not the house of the Lord. You are the house of the Lord. You do not come into the house of the Lord. At salvation, you become the house of the Lord. And then you never leave. All right? So what do we do with... This understanding of, okay, these holy temple utensils, we got golden spoons, we, should I not eat my cereal with them? You know, like, so how do we make sense of this? And I realized, wait a second, this all becomes clear. This division of secular and sacred all begins to make sense when we look at the incarnation. The incarnation is a fancy theological word for Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth to dwell as a man. It says, you know, the, um, in John chapter 1, when it talks about Jesus, it calls him the Word, the Logos, the Word of God made flesh. And it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Guys, like he took the one thing that would always, would always be secular and would ne could never be sacred, flesh. And what did Jesus do? He came and put it on. And he made it sacred. That's what the incarnation means. So how the temple utensils from an early Jewish understanding help us know what it means to walk in this world and to not be conformed to the, the passions of our former ignorance. It's pretty simple, guys. You realize that every single moment of Jesus' life wasn't on earth as it is in heaven moment. You ever thought about that? I love when, uh, I love when like the music and the sermon ended up kind of corresponding. I didn't, I didn't tell anybody who was picking out songs and stuff today what I was going to be talking about, but one of the primary things that I've been excited about contending for was this on earth as it is in heaven reality. And the first song, I love, they were just singing the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is if you've been in this room with me on a regular basis, I know you've heard me contend for this multiple times. And if this is the first time that you have heard it, then Lord willing, it will not be the last. Because I love, I love presenting this reminder to you. I love to stir you up by way of reminder that like you are not called to see on earth as it is in heaven as a casual phrase in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. But you're invited. You're invited to read that as if it could be your daily reality. And I know that because we are called to imitate a Jesus who did it every moment of every day. Now, here's the cool thing about that. When I think, oh, man, on earth as it is in heaven, 
my primary, the primary place I go with Jesus is the three years of ministry. Have you ever done the math of Jesus' life? It's 9% ministry, 91% day job and living at home. 91% of his life. God leaves heaven, puts on flesh, incarnationally, brings heaven here to earth in the form of Jesus, and then gets a day job. When Jesus was 24 years old, do you know what he was doing? He was living on earth as it is in heaven with the exact same and equal amount of obedience as he would at 33. How do I know that? Because if he had been less obedient, then the cross would have been null and void and pointless. The sacrifice that he made is the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world was only a valid sacrifice because it was perfect and unblemished, which means that when Jesus was eight years old, on earth as it is in heaven. When he was 24, on earth as it is in heaven. When he was on a cross, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven realities. When I was thinking about what it means to invite us to be holy, as he is holy, um, my mind went back to a moment that I had probably 15 years ago. Um, I got to work down in Panama City Beach, Florida, a ministry called Beach Reach. Love that ministry. Worked there for three years. Would spend the entire month of March down there and would run the prayer room. Um, and when I was down there, every year, I, I normally got to spend, I think it was, I would spend about eight hours in prayer um, with all 700 college students that came down. At some point, that would all be in small groups that would come throughout the evenings. We'd run the prayer room from about 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. most days. And we would pray as people were ministering on the streets. And when I was in that prayer room, I, man, just some incredible time, incredible moments where prayers were just answered in a way that, was irrational. God would just do a thing that wasn't possible. Be praying for something very specific that would come into our minds and then suddenly we get a report from somebody ministering on the streets that that exact thing had happened over and over again. And I remember one night, it was 5 a.m., I'd left the prayer and was with my friend Dustin Montgomery who just happened to also be from Kentucky. He was down there for the week. We were on the elevator back up to our rooms, finally getting to go to sleep. And he said something about like, man, that was really cool, like something that God had done that night in answer to prayer. And I was like, I know, man, I just love seeing supernatural things happen. And he stopped me, and he goes, is it really supernatural? I was like, yep, it's supernatural, dude. That's what we call that, you know, when God things happen, supernatural. And he goes, well, I kind of want to call that into question. And I'm like, all right, what you got, man? Theological battle, 5 a.m., let's go, let's do it. And, uh, And I realized that he won because the Bible actually supported what he was saying. And it supports it in 2 Peter chapter 1, 3, and 4. I'll read this scripture and I'll tell you what he contended for. His power, his divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers 
of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Partakers of divine nature. Guys, if we're going to define natural and supernatural, this actually isn't even really a theological discussion. It's, it's more a grammatical one. Natural and supernatural are attached to your nature. And if you are becoming a partaker of divine nature, if you have come to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if you've walked from death to life, if you know him, if you have fallen in love with him and you can tell that grace has been brought to you, that he has done a work in your heart that could only be explained as a divine encounter, then your nature is being made new. And if your nature is made new, then your definitions of natural and supernatural trade places. And that means, it was kind of cool because right after Dustin, Dustin told me that, we got off the elevator I remember being like, man, Lord, that was, that's true. Like now, if my nature is divine, then when I, when I begin to act like a son of God, that's not supernatural living, that's natural. And when I revert back to the passions of my former ignorance, that's supernatural living. That is exterior to my nature. I'm beginning to think about that, and I've been pondering it now for about 15 years. And just this invitation of like, Lord, I like that because what if what, if what we're talking about of on earth as, as it is in heaven living isn't actually some kind of profound jump that we have to get to? What if it was just intended to be the new normal? What if holy and being set apart wasn't something that you really had to try hard to to attain, but what if it was just the product of your new nature? When I preach weddings, one of my favorite things to remind people of is that whenever you say I do, that becomes a few billion I don'ts. When you say I do to a person in front of a crowd of people, you say I do to this covenantal commitment to these vows that you make, then it naturally becomes a few billion I don'ts. It becomes obviously the, just the, the few billion other people in the world that you were saying I don't to. It also then becomes an I don't to yourself. It becomes an I don't to a few billion preferences that you are likely to have through the course of your married life. That one I do becomes a few billion I don'ts. And I think it's a really healthy model for understanding what it means to be in covenant with the Father. Like my I do to the Father in covenantal relationship becomes a few billion I don'ts. As I was reading through this and I was thinking about holiness and what it meant for us to be a people that are holy, that are set apart from the world, that have been set apart, that begin to live like our last name as child of God, is obedient children, that you just say, I love my dad. And if the lost world is going to begin to make assumptions about my father based upon the way I live, then I don't want to miscommunicate to the lost world how beautiful he is. That's what set-apart living is. To be set-apart, it's to be other than. It's to be different 
if you find yourself looking, looking awfully, if you begin resembling the world around you, if you begin to resemble the world's opinions, if you begin coming to the same conclusions as your lost friends around you, then see that as a warning sign. Because you are to be set apart. You are to be altogether other than. We are aliens and exiles, just like our sermon series is going to be called, Living as Exiles. You will look alien to this world. And if you don't, beware. Not like, beware. Like, no, no, like, ask God, Lord, if I begin to resemble the world, then that means, obviously, I'm losing my resemblance to heaven. And I want to be an on earth as it is in heaven person. And at the same time, I could tell that as I was wanting to contend for holiness, you know, I would love, I, I think the cool thing is that Jesus comes down to this earth, he puts on flesh, and he makes everything sacred. And I do think in some ways, it's almost as if Jesus took the golden spoon out of the temple and ate his cereal with it. That he removed this gap between the secular and the sacred, and he has invited us to get to be on earth as it is in heaven people, not at special occasions once a week, not at your Bible study, not just in relationship with your Christian friends, but for your life to be so saturated by holiness that there is no category of who you are that has not been baptized with it. And I also want to make sure that as I contend for that, that my the invitation does not come across to you as, now I will go and behave better. You will, but if you behave better without loving more, your behavior's got the wrong root. So my invitation to you is not, not to behave better. It's love him more. Your behavior will flow out of that. So I was wrestling with that like I do becomes I don'ts. Um, even just the past few days, I had this thought, and it was, you know, marriage begins with I do, but salvation actually begins with I can't. And guys, that is, oh, it's so freeing. You know what I mean? That like salvation, that the step one of salvation for you and I is not like, Lord, I can do it. It's, I can't, but you can. I can't. And that's not, that's not a giving up. You know, there's this song I've been writing the past couple of years, and I got this bridge that, at the end of it that I sing all the time to the Father just in prayer. And it's, it's so simple, and I love it. It just says, I am nothing without you. I am nothing without you. And that's the best thing about me. What does it mean to be holy as he is holy? It starts with, I can't. But I believe that you can empower my I do. And with the power that he invests in us, not just generally from heaven, but it says specifically the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you now have access to. To live in the world in such a way that people go, man, there's something different about them. Set your hope fully on grace. As I was thinking through this, I was trying to think of like a, 
It's funny when you like organize a sermon because I always want to have like a, you know, like, oh, kind of a culminating moment. Like some, it's nice if you got like one, one liner, you know, like one of those zingers where people are like, oh, you know, and all of a sudden you see all the phones come out because they're writing it down. I don't, I don't have a lot of those. But, um, but I realized, you know what, Lord, I feel like actually the person that finishes up Peter's sermon best is not Peter. It's the Apostle Paul. And I was reading through Ephesians chapter 2. And I was thinking about what it means to invite you, a sermon that begins even from Peter's own, um, own invitation in this section of 13 through 16, to set your hope fully on grace. And then would come with a call to holiness. Say, like, okay, those two things are not contrary to one another. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, when you set your hope fully on grace, you will know that you have set your hope fully on grace when you find yourself becoming holy. Here's the way Paul says it, and we'll finish up. And this will be our invitation into communion, into continuing to worship. And really, I would invite you out of this scripture, if you would start a conversation with the Father today, and just ask him, Lord, where are the places that my hope is set partly on the grace that is to be revealed, that has been brought to me? Where are the places, where are the categories of my heart where my hope is only set partially? And teach me to set my hope fully. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everybody else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Hey, Lord, I've loved thinking about holiness this week, Father. I've loved thinking about set-apart living. I've loved like examining the categories of my heart where I feel like I am more prone to compartmentalize you. And I'm just asking you, Lord, afresh, baptize me. Lord, for real, baptize me with holiness. Baptize me, Lord. Father, baptize my mind. Prepare it for action. Make it sober.
make me holy as you are holy. Because, Lord, the fact that you have attached the reputation of the name of Jesus to the way that I live, Father, to the condition of my heart that expresses itself and set apartness to a lost world is still a little bit um, <laughs> like just kind of crazy to me, to be honest. But Lord, I know that you do all things well. And I know you have done that well. Thank you for the adoption that has turned us into sons and daughters of the Most High. May we live like every day we wake up with the jersey on. That on the back of it it says, Child of God, Son of the Most High, Daughter of the King. And may we live like it. Not by our own ability to will ourselves into volitional submission, but as we set our hope fully, not partially, not mostly, not 99.9% set on grace, but fully on the grace that will be brought to us. Thank you that you're bringing grace with you when you return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we sing, you're invited. As a response to that grace, one of the favorite reminders of that grace is what we have right here on these plates up here in the front. There's a plate in the back with communion. If you are a person who loves Jesus with all your heart and your hope is set fully on him, you can tell he's doing a work in your heart that we invite you to come and take, to eat, to drink, and to remember his shed blood and his broken body. And if you're not, we've got a better invitation. Man, set your hope fully on his grace and watch the story that he writes and rewrites in you.